Uh, last week at the beginning of the message, I talked about the number 168. And the reason we did that was because we were emphasizing that's how many hours you get every week. I mean, 24 hours in uh, a day and seven days in a week, you get 168 hours. And we were talking about how Solomon, although under commission from God to do certain things, had to get his government and his life organized to get them done. So uh, the fact that we're in God's will, seeking God's will, doesn't mean we shouldn't be well organized. And think with some basic proper priorities about our lives to get it organized. So that was last week, 168. Uh, today, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to do the impossible. In less than 48 minutes from the, right now, we're going to look at four whole chapters. Okay, Stephanie, are you up for four whole chapters? Okay, you're going to have to listen hard. You have to listen hard today. And there are 173 verses, Julie. We're going to try to summarize in, uh, in a short period of time. And when you look at these verses, they might uh, appear to be kind of a mundane listing of details related to the construction of the first temple, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. But at the same time, you, you look at this content, and it does teach us some interesting and important things. And the one I want to emphasize today is that not only do believers have a right, we have a responsibility to celebrate, as long as we're doing it the right way for the right reasons. And so as you celebrate a wedding anniversary or birthday or a magnificent win against the uh, University of Texas yesterday or whatever you're celebrating, uh, we, we need to appreciate these punctuation marks in our life on earth because the earth's broken, man. I mean, the death rate's 100%, and bad things happen to good people all the time, and worse to me, good things seem to happen to bad people a lot. And so as we live in this fallen world in which God manages to get a lot of cool things into, you know, it's messed up so badly, uh, we need to celebrate and notice the things God is doing, like birthdays and uh, family reunions and graduations and those kind of things, and celebrate them, and we have every right to do so. And we're going to see in the context of building this temple that God has uh, put on uh, David's heart and Solomon's heart, and is certainly what God wants to have happen, that as they achieve this thing and accomplish the building of the temple, they, they basically have a two-week national party. And uh, we should, as Christians, we have a lot to celebrate anyway, a lot to be thankful about. Uh, it's okay, and in fact, it's uh, encouraged for Christians to celebrate things that uh, are good in our lives and around us. So we're going to think about that this morning. But uh, let's pray for our teachability, our troops, our peace officers, our firefighters. Uh, and uh, Steve, uh, pray for us in that direction, would you? Thanks, Steve. I, I forgot to go through our uh, slides of heroes there. I love that picture, Ground Zero. But uh, talking about celebrating things, uh, let me start by warming our capacity for abstract thinking up with a couple of semi-humorous statements about celebrating birthdays. Uh, statistics prove that birthdays are good for you because the people who have the most birthdays always live the longest. So, that's true. Patient to doctor, every time I eat birthday cake, I get heartburn. Doctor to patient, from now on, take off the candles. So I said mildly, funny, I didn't really say laugh out loud. 
finally, one good way for a husband to remember his wife's birthday is to forget it just once. <laughs> and you will never have that trouble again. Yeah, we're going to, let's make that 5-1 through 8-66. I wonder who proofreads these slides. It's crazy. Time to celebrate. Solomon and a nation build and dedicate the temple. And even in our worst periods, there are punctuation marks God puts in our lives that are worth celebrating. And as believers, as James and the worship team did so well, really got us centered on the person and work of Christ and his finished atoning work and his resurrection and all we have to look forward to. So Christians ought to be world-class celebrators. We're going to talk about the building of the temple today. And I'll be just saying, passing a few things about the temple I want you to know. Number one, the temple was the place where God visibly manifested his presence in a special, concerted way. God's omnipresent. He's everywhere in time and space. But he manifests his presence in a visible way now in what we would call heaven too, and the Old Testament in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle slash temple. That's number one. Number two, the temple was a permanent building. Uh, from Moses until Solomon, Israel, the theocratic nation, had a portable temple, a tent structure called the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was portable and movable. Uh, with Solomon's temple, we have a permanent building, a central sanctuary located in a city, a specific city, the city of Jerusalem, right? And uh, there are actually going to have been two temples in biblical history, and there will be two more. But today we're going to focus on the first one. Uh, I think when we finish the life of uh, Solomon, we're going to do a couple of special studies, and we might spend one morning uh, talking about those four different temples. But today let's focus on Solomon's temple. Uh, and so we're going to make it spin for you. Okay. Now, uh, verses, uh, these 173 verses break down into just three parts. First, we're going to see preparation for building the temple, then the construction of the temple, then the dedication and celebration of the temple. Okay. Boom. Let's stay there. Look at uh, verses 1 through 12. Chapter 5. First Kings chapter 5. Verse 1 and following. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, he's a Phoenician just north of Israel on the Mediterranean, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him, Solomon, in place of his father. For Hiram, king of Tyre, had always been a friend of David. Then Solomon sent word to Hiram, saying, You know that David, my father, was unable to build a house, a temple, a a permanent building in Jerusalem in the name of the Lord his God, because of the wars which surrounded him until the Lord put them all under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, peace dividend, thank you, Dad, Solomon's saying, Uh, there's neither adversary nor misfortune. Behold, I intend under those circumstances, among other reasons, to build a house, a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to David my father, saying, Your son, David, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he will build the house for my name. Now, therefore, Solomon says to Hiram, command that they cut for me cedars from Lebanon, the best possible uh, timbers for this kind of construction purpose grew only in uh, in and around Tyre, uh, which is called the region today Lebanon, uh, and it's what they call part of his kingdom, Lebanon. And my servants... Uh, will with your servants 
and I will give you wages. I'm going to pay your, your folks an appropriate amount of money uh, for your service according to all that you say. You just set it up. You design it. I trust you. But I want to get the best possible timbers and, and material for this temple we're going, to about, uh, we're going to build. For now you know there's no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. I mean, if you want timber cut, you've got to get the Sidonians to do it, at least back then. And they didn't have chainsaws back then. Okay, They had to know how to use an axe. Came about when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord today, who has given to David a wise son over the great people. I do notice that sometimes people read some of these uh, pagan kings in the Old Testament saying nice things about Israel's God, and they assume they must be believers, and maybe some of them got to be believers, but uh, these people are polytheists, okay? Not Solomon. But all the surrounding nations are polytheists. They believe in many gods, and they think that the God of Israel is just one of many good ones. And so he's glad that uh, Solomon has found his own truth there. So I wouldn't necessarily read too much into that based on other statements in Scripture uh, and other, other dynamics. But it, if you see him in heaven, that will be great. But i got a feeling he's just seeing uh, the God of Israel as one of many, right? So blessed be the Lord today who has given to David a wise son over this great people. So Hiram sent word to Solomon saying, I have heard the message which you have sent to me. I will do what you desire concerning the cedar and cypress timber. My servants will bring them down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will make them into rafts to go by sea to the place where you direct me, and I will have them broken up there, and you shall carry them away. Then you shall accomplish my desire by giving food to my household. Just take care of my people. I'll take care of your desire. I'll get you the wood down there. So Hiram gave Solomon as much as he desired of the cedar and cypress timber. And Solomon then gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat. Think of 55-gallon drums for cores as food for his household and 20 cores of beaten oil. Thus Solomon would give Hiram year by year during the construction process. The Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. That's a good thing. And the two of them made a covenant. I drop down to verse 18. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the Gebelites cut them and prepared the timbers and stones to build the house, the house of the Lord. So you're seeing preparations there. Now David, Solomon's father, had also stockpiled a lot of other material. So the, you know everything has to be organized. Is God in this time? Is, does God want this temple to be built? Yeah, so it's going to be easy. It's going to happen like three days, not too much work, not much, not any planning, no frustrations, just simple, right? It's going to take seven years. they got a lot of stuff stockpiled, stockpiled from David's day, but he's got to get more stuff. So uh, it's not easy. It's not easy to do the right thing. God actually asks us to make real choices. You know, if everybody who loved the Lord came to church on Sunday mornings and came to prayer meeting would never have any relationship problems, ever, never have any job problems, never have any physical problems, no heart problems, no skin rashes. You know, after a while, everybody would come to church on Sundays and Wednesdays just to get what the, uh, the, the genie in heaven was giving you. But then you wouldn't see who's really dedicated. You know I mean? Uh, you know, we're not bulletproof. And I do tend to think people labor under the illusion. If I was just exactly thinking and living the way God wanted me to live and think, I wouldn't have any of these problems I see. And in fact, uh, especially as our culture goes more and more downhill, uh, to the extent you identify with Christ and just by living uh, kind of semi, 
a normal life, uh, you're going to stand out from the crowd, and it's very convicting to some people. So you're actually going to attract more flack if you do it the right way than less. So anybody who promises you uh, smooth sailing is, is lying to you because you're going to eventually get hit, and then you're going to wonder what happened, right? So that's preparation for the temple. Now let's look at the construction phase of the temple, uh, which is actually... Uh, um, several chapters there, I guess chapter 6 and 7, has three parts. The building uh, of the temple, then as a parenthesis, this is weird, look. You've got the building of the temple, it's all about the temple, temple, temple. Let's prepare for it, let's build it, let's dedicate it, let's celebrate. And then you've got this parenthesis talking about Solomon building his palace, which is kind of interesting. Full disclosure, uh, the Bible certainly doesn't cover up uh, the warts of its characters, nor maybe difficult to explain details, Sue. I mean, he's going to let you know that in addition to really wanting to build this uh, temple for God, he's also interested in building himself a really swanky end, you know, a really nice house. But I'm not sure it's as nefarious as some people make it. So the building of the temple, parenthesis, building of Solomon's palace, and then the furnishings of the temple. Uh, look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt under Moses and constructed the tabernacle, so we've been that long with a tabernacle, not a temple, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is April slash May, it's a lunar month, which is, in the sec- which is the second month on their calendar, that he, Solomon, began to build the house of the Lord. That would be in 967 B.C. according to Ryrie. And you always have to trust Ryrie, right, Eric? At least 99% of the time, he's pretty good, right? Now, drop down to verse 37. You wonder how it's going to do 157 verses, right? Uh, In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. We just read about that, uh, 480 years after the Exodus. And in the eleventh year of Solomon's reign, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished throughout all its parts and according to its plans. So it was seven years in building it. So it takes seven years, and this is a top priority. I mean, the best workmanship, all the uh, off the top of the treasury, all the money is going directly to building this thing. It's important to do it, and they do it right. And you might think, golly, if God's in it, it can't take more than three days. It just took three days to resurrect Christ. So why is it going to take seven years to build this building? Uh, it's not even furnished yet. It's, it, it takes a while to do anything substantial. Uh, somebody said, and, and some of us love sports, and we love Sports Center. You know, uh, I was talking, talking to Lyndall uh, just a minute ago, and uh, in teaching about uh, rabbinic, rabbinical Judaism uh, in the religion class at Cameron, I came across a statement by an Orthodox Jew that said, uh, Orthodox Jews never even open their eyes first thing in the morning before they thank God for the day. And I thought, man, I'd I'd maybe try that. Because right now my kind of procedure is wake up, look for the clicker, and turn it on Sports Center. And then then I start the day, you know, go from there. So I'm not bragging about that, just full disclosure. But one thing about Sports Center is you only see the guy making the putt to win the tournament. You only see the guy jumping over the pile and scoring the touchdown, the guy kicking the long field goal. You don't see all the years and years of practice, pain, toil. Uh, you see all these walk-off home runs. You know, A lot of us played baseball our whole lives and never had a walk-off home run. 
I had two walk-off singles that I remember, and I, they were burned into my memory. That's how important they are to me, okay? Uh, nobody cares, but I do, you know? So in a way, all we see is a highlight film, uh, and or in the news, it's just the opposite. What's the worst thing that happened in Iraq today? What's the worst thing that happened in the United States today? What's the dumbest thing Trump said today? That's the news, people. That's what you see on the news. That's what you see on the sports. And most of life is in the middle there somewhere, you know? Uh, and so I do tend to think we think, boy, if God's in this, uh, it's got to be easy. And if it's if it's difficult, it can't be of God. Let's go to plan B, C, D, E, F, G, X, Z. What do you do after Z? Z prime. You know, and people are always changing plans. When it seems to me the basic plan is love God, love other people. You know, abide in Christ. Use whatever gifts and talents you've got with some kind of structure and priority. We talked about that last week. And love the Lord and love the people you're responsible for and see what happens. And uh, you may not get rich and famous. You know, when I, hey, when I started the ministry decades ago, I had no desire to become rich or famous. And look, it's working. It's working out great. It's fantastic. You know, but uh, it's interesting. This is definitely what God wants to have done, and yet he's not sending angels to do it for him. He's letting them do it. It's taken a while. Now, interesting, James, between this statement about the building of the temple and the furnishings, you got this little parenthesis. I think uh, the writer of 1 Kings, may have been Ezra or someone like that, felt like he needed to include this. It's like a parenthesis. And uh, look at verse 1. Now, so what do we see here, Mike? Uh, in verse 37, 38, we're told it took seven years to build the temple. And then immediately we're told, now Solomon was building his own house. And it took him 13 years to build that. And then he finished his house. So, you know, people jump to conclusions. You know, you have certain things that are just facts. You know, when a homicide detective comes to the scene of a murder, all he's got is what's left over from the murder. He's got a lot of facts. Hopefully he's got some DNA evidence and fingerprints and a murder weapon and, and this and that. But it's possible sometimes to look at a, a murder scene and come up with two different scenarios or multiple scenarios about what caused it, who did it, how it happened, that kind of thing. Uh, we got a fact here, Sue. we got a fact that the Bible's not hiding from you, that it took seven years to build the temple and 13 years for Solomon to build his own house. And so what do you do with that? And it's interesting. Uh, it can be interpreted a couple different ways. Some commentators interpret it as a bad thing. How dare he spend almost twice as much time on his own house than he spent on the Lord's house, you know? Others uh, interpret it as a good thing. Uh, Solomon was pouring all the priority and all the energy on building the temple, and then much slower priority. He's got a lot of other things going on. The reason it took longer, it wasn't as important to him. See? So I would just say, as, as a Christian, let's give other believers the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give him... Now, we're going to find out some real slimy things about him, and all you wives already know. Every time I mention the 700 wives and 300 concubines, I mean, Nancy just kind of goes like that. I mean, what a jerk, you know. Um, I get it, you know. I, I'm not crazy about it either, but... Uh, Let's just, can we just give each other the benefit of the doubt, including people who don't come to this church that love the Lord to go to other churches, just give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, whenever some pastor does something stupid or weird, I, not, none of you tell me anymore, because I, I kind of told you I don't want to hear it uh, third hand, but I get people at Cameron or people send me emails. I don't know you, pastor, but you need to know my pastor's a jerk. Well, that makes my day. And I feel so much better. I guess they think we have such a bad self-image, we want to know how crummy, that the other ones are worse than we are or something. That just doesn't turn my crank. You know, to me, um, and I've had my heart broken a few times giving people the benefit of the doubt, but I just, I still generally, I guess I'm Pollyanna, 
Pastor Pollyanna, I want to give people, including my fellow clergymen, the benefit of the doubt. Now, if you got pictures, you know, uh, you can't trust the pictures anymore. They can Photoshop that stuff. So uh, anyway, but I will say when certain politicians say, tell you, there is no evidence I did X. That's not them saying I didn't do it. That's just saying there ain't no evidence because we destroyed all the evidence. Okay, so be smart enough. I mean, really, that's what they do mean. They're all lawyers, so... Uh, just be aware that's what's going on there. So anyway, I, I'm personally not going to read a bunch of negativity into Solomon taking twice as long because I think it wasn't as big of a priority to him. And if we're wrong, uh, look me up in heaven and we'll correct that for you, okay? Um, yeah, and then the furnishings of the temple, look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. Uh, now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. Now this is not King Hiram. From Tyre, this is another guy named Hiram. There are more, at least two guys named Hiram, just like there's more than two guys named Steve and Duncan. You realize that? You're special. You're special to me. And you're important. But, so is everybody else, especially everybody else named Steve. So, yeah, just context allows you to do things like this. The word trunk, what does a trunk mean? Stan, what's a trunk mean? Tell me. A trunk. Yeah, what does a trunk mean? Perfect. That's the, that's the only possible answer, right? That's a good answer, but there's a lot of things. Could be an elephant's nose, could be the trunk of your body, could be the trunk of a tree. So when you've got one word with two different meanings, you just use context to tell you what it means. So this guy is some well-known interior designer, basically, decorator guy. Uh, he was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and Hiram the king wasn't from the tribe of Naphtali. His mother wasn't Jewish. His father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. What's the what's the most Savannah? What what's the fanciest maybe fashion designer out there that you're aware of? Does a name come to mind? Uh, okay, you know uh, if somebody who knew about fashion designers would mention that person's name. Uh, in a, an account of some kind of attempt to uh, get uh, a wardrobe for the wife or for the first lady or something like that, that that'd mean a lot. So in this context, Hiram from Tyre was just the guy who worked in bronze who you want to do that kind of work for you. So that's the emphasis there. Uh, and now he's become famous because he's included in the, in the passage here. God chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 51 so, Brad, anytime you talk about 173 verses, you mean you're going to skip most of them, right? Yeah, that's basically right. I'm just summarizing here, you know. We only have a limited amount of time. We're 23 minutes into this, okay? Exactly, you know, according to my clock here. But, yeah, what did I say? Verse 51. Thus, all the work that King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished. We got it furnished. And Solomon brought in the things dedicated by his father David, the silver and the gold and the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So let's look at some graphics here. Uh, this is a nice, I think, clear graphic of what Solomon's temple would have looked like. It's a very substantial building. Uh, we won't go through the, the whole uh, meaning of all the implements. We may do that later. But here's what I want to emphasize right now. If that's what Solomon's temple essentially looked like on the Temple Mount, what does that Temple Mount look like now? And I, I think most of you know this. 
But there isn't a Jewish temple there, and there hasn't been a Jewish temple there since 70 A.D. But there is a building there. It's called the Dome of the Rock. Uh, Muhammad lived from 570 to 632 A.D., and by 700, just a little less than 70 years after he died, uh, Muslims had controlled and conquered all of North Africa, Israel into Syria, almost into the, in Turkey, almost into the Balkans across uh, the Bosphorus there. And in 700, they built this. That's not a mosque. That's a mosque. They also built that a little bit later. They built that, the Dome of the Rock, to commemorate the victory of Islam over Judaism and Christianity. And they made, made a point to build their commemorative structure on top of the location of the temple, Solomon's temple, the first temple, and Herod's temple, the second temple. So that's what you see there now. Of course, that was just a drawing, but that's a helpful schematic. Now, here's a, a picture. I didn't take this picture. But in addition, so what, what are you looking at there? Dome of the Rock, and it's sitting on top of what? The Temple Mount, perfect. Uh, what's that? That's the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. And I just like that shot. I did Google Images to get that one. But I, I took these other pictures, and I'm not a great photographer, but this gives you a sense of how big. These are people here, not ants, right? That's a person. That's a person, right? That's the, the Western Wall. There's the Dome of the Rocks. So that's where the temple would have stood. There's that mosque, the Al-Aska Mosque we talked about. But that's the Western Wall. What's what's the big deal about the Western Wall? I'm going to show you. Uh, took this picture, too. I, just, I, I love having the Israeli flag there. Modern photography. And then there's the Western Wall. And there's me and, and Jamie and Jonathan. Right? Remember that, Tom? Now, here's why the Western Wall is important. This is a, uh, a model, uh, a slightly different angle. But this would have been the Temple of Jesus' day, uh, Herod's Temple, the second temple. It would have been built on the exact location of the first temple we're talking about today. And you've got this retaining wall all the way around the Temple Mount there. And when you look at the western wall, you're looking about you're looking at that part of that retaining wall. So it's a direct artifact from the second temple in Jerusalem. And, and yeah, literally, when we saw those people standing, and Tom, I couldn't find it, but we had a picture of you, me, and Jamie praying face face up against the the wailing wall. I couldn't find it, but what I wanted to say was, you know, if that's the if that's ground level, because those people stand on ground level. That wall goes down at least that far into the ground. So when you're looking at the western wall, you're looking at like that part of that wall, and the ground level is there now and today, right? It goes down, and and we had the opportunity to go down, and we didn't see the whole thing, but we went down uh, and saw some of the uh, part of the wall that goes below the uh, ground level. But that's an attempt to kind of put that together. Can you see what I'm saying here? There's the there's the Western Wall, there's the temple uh, location of the temple, Dome of the Rock actually, and that's what you would have been looking at in in Jesus' day. Okay, boom, All right. Now uh, I've been to Israel several times. The only time they've allowed me and my group to get on the Temple Mount was the one time uh, Tom went with us. And I, this group went with us because when the Israelis liberated Jerusalem. In 1967, um, they 
gave control of the Temple Mount to the Mufti, this kind of the highest ranking Muslim cleric in the city of Jerusalem, because they had their commemorative building there. So the Israelis said, okay, you can still control the Temple Mount. And, uh, you know, two times out of three, when I've been in Israel, the Mufti said, we're not going to let Christians or Jews come up today. It's just, it's random. It's just arbitrary. Um, I remember, uh, I guess I didn't realize that uh, we had that kind of arbitrary thing going because like the first time I went to Israel, I came back and I bumped into Brad Allen and he's been there 10 times. And he said, did you get to go up on the Temple Mount? And I said, no, we didn't get up to the Temple Mount. Come to think of it, we did, I thought we were just too busy and I always I wanted to go up there. And he said, well, I guess the Mufti didn't want you up there that day. So it's very arbitrary. But for what it's worth, this is a pretty unique picture because many people who go to Israel aren't allowed to go up to the Temple Mount. So you can actually tell we're there. I took that picture, of course. But there's Homer. I'm not making this up. There's Jamie. There's, there's Gene. There's, we got Debbie. This guy was trying to sell us stuff, you know. He's following us around. And then, yeah, I like that picture, but I don't really like it because you probably can't see it, and I'm probably way too self-conscious. But I had some binoculars, and I put the strap on. It got behind me, this binocular, so I could take that picture and want to hold them. But it looks like I got a necklace on. And, you know, I just don't, I'm not, I'm not willing to go. I mean, I'll take my suit off and just wear uh, jeans and a nice shirt and even untuck my shirt if I have to become rich and famous. But I'm not going to wear a necklace. And it looks like I'm wearing a necklace there. So more than you want to know, right? Okay. Preparation for building. Construction, and now we're going to look at the dedication in uh, chapter 8. Let's read uh, some of this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's households of the sons of Israel, to Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which was in the city of David, just south of the Temple Mount on uh, Zion, uh, the city of David is called, it's in the, re, it's very close, but it has not yet been put into the uh, temple there. Drop down to verse 3. Then all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. They brought up the ark of the Lord and the, uh, and the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him or to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that could not be numbered or counted. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It's this box that looks like a coffin with the tablets of the law in it. And during the one day a year, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, the high priest would go into the back part of the temple, Holy of Holies. That's where the ark was. That's where the manifested glory of God was manifested. And he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial animal on the top of the coffin the lid of the coffin was called the mercy seat. And what's inside the box? The tablets of the law, right, Krista? And the nation, like all of us, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They're breaking the Ten Commandments constantly. But when the blood gets between God looking down at the broken law, there is at one there's atonement. So that's the, I think for New Testament Christians, that's the most important uh, ritual that happens there. But it's very important we get the Ark of the Covenant into the temple this new temple he's built. So the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house, into the Holy of Holies, to the most holy place under the wings of the golden cherubim. Uh, drop down to verse 9. There was nothing in the Ark, this coffin-like box, rectangular box, 
except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, uh, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt, 480 years plus seven before that. It came about that when the priests came from the holy place, that the cloud, the manifested visible presence of God, filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. So the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Until this happens, Jan, you just got a really nice empty building. And now, boom, you've got it. I mean, you've got the theocratic nation with a central sanctuary. It's a beautiful thing. And God's manifested presence is in the very heart of it. And when you look at this, there's the dedication of the temple. You learn some really cool lessons about God. Let's look at a couple of these. From a historical perspective, you see the sovereignty of God. Look at uh, verse 14. Then the king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of Egypt under Moses, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel, and was to build a house. They had a tabernacle, a tent, not a, a building, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel to get everything organized. Now it was in the heart of my father David, Solomon says, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well. I don't want you to do it, but you're thinking the right thing in God rewards not just what we do, but why we do it. He looks at the desires of our hearts, not just the outward actions. You did well that was in your heart. Nevertheless, nevertheless, David was told, you shall, you, you shall not be the one who built the, the temple for me, but your son who will be born to you, he will build a house for my name. Now, Solomon says, think about it. Now the Lord has fulfilled that promise which he spoke. For I have risen in the place of my father. I sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set a place for the ark, in which is the symbol of the covenant we have with the Lord, which he made which He made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So you're seeing the sovereignty of God. What God says will happen, Deborah, is going to come to pass, even if it takes 487 years. Even if it takes 2,000 years from the time of Abraham for the blessings of the Messiah to take place the first coming, even if it takes 2,000 years from the first coming to the second coming. What God says will come to pass, but he's, he's sovereign. He's got a plan. He didn't ask you about the plan. He's happy with the plan. and He didn't need you to consult on the plan. We need to trust and obey, right? That's the most important lesson of theology. Another thing we could say, look at verse 27. Moving from a historical perspective, the sovereignty of God, let's think about the theological perspective and, and the transcendence of God. What does the transcendence mean? We know that God is everywhere. That's omnipotence. Transcendence means he's outside of time and space. And we don't even have categories to make have thoughts about what that even is. We can barely kind of conceive of the possibility. But look what Solomon says here in verse 27. Talking about the greatness of the promises and the greatness that they've got this building now and God's manifested presence is there and all this wonderful stuff. But then he says, watch. Rhetorical question. But will God... I mean, the creator, sustainer of the universe, indeed dwell on the earth? He's not homeless, wondering if we'd build a building here. The old heaven and the highest heaven cannot continue. You're bigger than time and space. 
much less this house which I have built. Uh, you know, I guess the best antidote to pride is to get a, a feel for how big uh, God is and how complicated it is. And one reason I think he allows some things to happen to us we can't understand is so we've got to swallow the bitter pill that there's only one God and we ain't him. But I always love that statement of the uh, transcendence of God there. If we had a bit more time, I'm watching the clock today, because uh, and I could do a lot of damage with 173 verses if there were no limits here to say oh no. But uh, you know if you can remember the word terslev, which is a uh, Swedish word, t t t o o o j s j r s l i v e. You remember the basic attributes of God. He's true. That is not that he's truthful. That's here. But he's real. He's not just real. What's the difference between Christianity and all the world religions? Well, the number one uh, difference is the God of Christianity is real. That's the number one difference, you know. Uh, he's, he's true, and he's the source of all reality, okay? Triune, transcendent means bigger than the universe, and we could go on. But that's a nice statement, the transcendence of God. He's not just uh, able to figure out how everything fits together in time and space. He's outside of time and space, right? And you have to have that. If anything now exists, something must be eternal. Otherwise, the source of everything popped into existence out of nothing. You've got to have a transcendent cause for the universe we live in if you want to be rational. Okay? Let's look at the third thing we learned from a soteriological doctrine of salvation, love of God perspective. Look at this. Is this incredible? God so loved the world. In Genesis 12, Abraham's called, and in you, in your seed, in the Messiah, the whole world's going to be blessed. Also, concerning the foreigner who's not of your people Israel, ethnically not a Jew, when that person comes from the far country for your name's sake, Israel is supposed to be a light to attract anybody, including Moabites like Ruth, right? People like that. Uh, How about, uh, uh, what was Bathsheba's first husband's name? Uriah the Hittite, okay? If anybody in part because we've got this temple the whole world's going to be talking about, comes from a far country for your name's sake. They come humbly wanting to know you. But they'll hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When that person comes and prays toward this house, in front of this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, do according to all which the foreigner calls you to do in order that the peoples of the earth may know your name. The peoples of the earth. Not just, This wasn't exclusive. This wasn't just for Jews. Jesus isn't just the Jewish Messiah. He's the Savior of the whole World, right? It's always the plan. To fear you, reverential awe and respect. So, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name, and that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God. There is no one else. Hiram believed in lots of gods, and the God of David and Solomon was one of them and seemed to be a pretty nice God. Uh, the reality is there's only one God, and you're not him, and Neither are the other things we want to worship in our lives. So historically, we see the sovereignty of God. Theologically, we see the transcendence of God. Soteriologically, we see the love of God for anyone who come to him in faith. And now in verses 61, 62, we see uh, from a lifestyle, lifestyle perspective uh, the need for us to believe, behave, and be thankful. Uh, let your heart, therefore, he's saying to the people, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, not just this day, but every day, to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments. Uh, the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. 
on the eighth day, which is actually after one week, and then they went another week. So they did 15 days of celebration. Solomon sent the people away. That tells you something. Birthdays are great. Anniversaries are great. Graduation parties are great. Project graduation, nothing better than that. The parents do all the work. Everybody stays up all night. You give them all the gifts. They go home and crash, and the parents have to go clean up. You know, I've done that twice, you know. Uh, but it's great. It keeps everybody off the street and lets them kind of blow up a lot of steam. But eventually, you got to leave project graduation and go get a job. You know, you got to go I'll do this routine stuff that keeps America going, keeps the world going. So Solomon extends it from a week to two weeks, but then he says, okay, we got to go back home. You know, we got to go back to the routine. So he sent the people away, and they went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, keeping his promise to him through all of this and to Israel, his people. By the way, sometimes you'll hear, James, that the Old Testament is just worried about the overt actions and doesn't worry about the heart. Old Testament's all about the heart. It says so right there. Let your heart, your mind and your will, your uh, inner you, think right and then live consistently with it. Boom, we're actually going to make the time here. Uh, take this to heart. Christians not only have a right to party, they have a responsibility to party, to celebrate, as long as we do so the right way for the right reasons. And I think in First uh, Kings here 5-8, through eight, uh, we see the principle that believers, put your name in the blank if you're a believer in Christ, Christians should actively appreciate and therefore actively celebrate key accomplishments, key achievements as unto the Lord. They're doing that in the Old Testament under the law. How much more should we do that uh, on the New Testament side of the ledger where we're taking the training wheels off of spirituality, Old Testament law, and we're abiding in Christ? Uh, well, you might say, well, Solomon did that, but he's a big blowhard, and he's got all those concubines and porcupines or whatever he had there, and so who cares what he did? You know. And we've said not everything in, in narrative literature is designed as a uh, prescription, sometimes just a description of what they did, even when they do something stupid or sinful or, or lazy. But let's think about our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you guys know this because I think before we did Solomon, we did the seven sign miracles in the Gospel of John. And what was the first sign miracle in John chapter 2? Water and the wine. Why was he making water and the wine? Why? Keep a party going. He was doing. He, Jesus goes to a wedding and a wedding feast, which is just an extended party. It lasts a couple of days. And they run out of refreshments, and he makes refreshments. But, you know, uh, you might think, well, it's one thing if he heals a blind person. That's pretty good, right, Dennis? But he's just making refreshments? I mean, Janice can do that. In fact, she does it so well, that's the reason I don't have to do it. She always always making refreshments, you know? Um, you don't want me making the refreshments, believe me. But, uh, but yeah, I think sometimes we miss that. Uh, I think sometimes we think that really spiritual people always have their nose way up here. They're very critical. of They, they interpret all these facts about all these people in the most negative light because they're very very discerning, you know, very negative, very critical, always upset about everybody else's, everybody else's issues. And they're not so trivial in their lives and their priorities. They would go to a wedding reception and just kind of laugh and drink some punch and I'm a teetotaler, so I'm going to drink the punch, but uh, or sneak in the Diet Coke Zero or whatever I want to drink, you know. Uh, and usually at wedding receptions, they're okay with that. But uh, it seems like Jesus doesn't mind letting his hair down a little bit. At least he did in that occasion, and uh, he actually uh, enabled the party to 
go into uh, probably an extra day or two because of his work there. Uh, another example I like to use, you've heard me say this before probably, but in, in John chapter 10, it's one thing for Jesus to go to Jerusalem for the Passover or even tabernacles, as John mentioned. But in John chapter 10, we're told Jesus was in Jerusalem December before the April crucifixion when it's dangerous for him to be anywhere near Jerusalem. And he goes to Jerusalem on purpose, even though it freaks out his disciples who don't want to get anywhere near Jerusalem, for the festival or the Feast of Lights. And we're assuming that must be some biblical uh, Old Testament holiday. It's not. It's what we call Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not a biblical holiday. The Old Testament was finished in about 400 B.C., and then you've got the beginning of John the Baptist ministry and Jesus. But in that gap, that silent period it's called, you had a uh, George Washington, Judas Maccabee, who threw off the Syrian uh, Antiochus Epiphanes yoke over the Jews, and they had 99 years. The Romans stopped it on the 99th year of freedom. And the, the Feast of, ha- of uh, Hanukkah, is not Jewish Christmas, Christmas, even though it happens in December. It's a Jewish military patriotic holiday where they have a lot of fun and have a lot of, and exchange gifts and have fun, but it's all about a non-biblical holiday. And I know some people who are so spiritual, they only do stuff directly taught in the Bible, which is interesting because how do you turn your air conditioner on then? You know? Uh, and they have enough faith, nothing bad's going to happen to them, but they've got, uh, Glasses, they usually dye their hair or have a hairpiece, you know. At least I guess the guys in the pulpit do that. So, you know, it kind of blows my mind. But they don't notice that Jesus does stuff like keep a party going in John 2 or goes out of his way to celebrate a patriotic military holiday in John 10. So Jesus seemed to think that was okay also. And so I'm just going to say, uh, if anybody's got something to celebrate, those of us who believe in the res- risen Christ, who trusted in him for our salvation, we've got a lot to appreciate in this horrible, dreadful, dead and dying world where a lot of bad things happen to all of us all the time. But, man, you can celebrate your birthday or your anniversary or your uh, your wedding uh, at, by reception uh, or graduation um, or maybe even clergy appreciation day. And there are exactly like 17 shopping days between now and clergy appreciation day. Now, you know, I don't, I don't care about culture appreciation dialed all that much, uh, but uh, I do think that uh, Christians should let our hair down a little bit and really punctuate a great accomplishments and great events in our lives with some uh, righteous celebration. Okay? Now let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to realize even in our darkest moments, you have manifested your presence with us. You don't leave us when we're suffering when we've been abused or rejected or we've just done shameful things that we don't want anybody to know about. You don't leave us. Uh, you don't forsake us. Uh, you're as close uh, as ever. And maybe even we can sense it even more intimately when we get in tune with that. But so often we can get either uh, very trivial about everything or get so serious we don't have time and don't take the energy to celebrate our anniversary like we should, or somebody's birthday, or graduation, or a retirement, uh, or some of these great events that you do use to punctuate our lives. So help us to uh, righteously celebrate these kind of things and, and do it the right way for the right reasons to your glory. And give us uh, some practical ideas for each one of us and how we should do that better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.